trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I need to give you this warning up front. Listening to programs like this could constitute a narrative violation and cost you up to 10 social credits. Okay, it's not the reality yet, but uh, I get the feeling that this is going to be the case someday. And actually, I'm very proud to be one of those narrative violators. <laughs> so pull up a comfortable chair and let's revel in wrong think. This program is brought to you by great sponsors like GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and HSLAmmo.com. I, you know... I need to get something off my chest here, and this is not some deep, dark confession, but I want you to know that I really enjoy what I do, not from the standpoint that, man, it's fun to talk about the world falling apart all around us. That part's not so much fun, but it's exhilarating to be part of a counter to the, the misinformation, disinformation, the detachment from reality that is part of the official narrative. I got an email from Tom Woods yesterday that uh, I think explains this so well. He says, the official news outlets are a joke. Now, he says, I knew that for some time, of course, but the extent to which they are truly nothing but propaganda factories has never been clearer. Even the headlines themselves are driven by an agenda. So the good news, and I agree with him on this, he says, as a podcaster and as, as a broadcaster, in my case, I get to defy the media's narratives and for a large, largely, I get away with it. I mean, knock on wood so far. Every single day, if I want to. He says, I can reach a potentially limitless audience and reassure them that they haven't lost their minds. And that is one of the reasons why I do what I do. Because I know there are people who are looking for truth, looking for reassurance that they're not, they're not losing their grip on reality. Tom Wood says, I can reach, I can inform that segment of the population whose instincts tell them not to jump on board the establishment's latest bout of hysteria. And that's a really exhilarating place to be. And even if it doesn't apply for everybody, and look, I I will freely admit, the message that I have is not for everyone. Not because they're not worthy of it or because, you know, somehow I'm better than them. The reality is there are just a lot of people who are not ready to, they're they're not ready to, to, consider, much less embrace, truths that could be very painful and could actually cause them to challenge much of what they have believed all along. So if if you have found the courage to confront some hard truths, to bump into the limits of your your, uh, mental boundaries every so often, first of all, I commend you for that courage. That's a rare thing. You do not find that uh, very often. But I also want to give you some reassurance. It doesn't take Uh, A vast majority of people, the masses don't have to be on board in order for you and I to still have impact and influence on the world around us. Truth be told, most of the the real influence, the, the, the innovation that drives, you know, a move towards something better doesn't come from the masses. The masses follow. Oh, which way is the herd going? Okay, I'm going to go that way. 
but it's the small, courageous acts on the part of individuals like you and me that make it possible for us to, to find that higher ground. So if you're in the midst of that quest, thank you. Thank you for giving me a chance to, to share some information with you that I hope will be useful and hopefully shed some light on where we are. Now, having said that, let's get right down to uh, causing some discomfort, okay? <laughs> no Novocaine, nope, we're going to face this head on. With so much of our attention being deliberately focused on the Ukraine-Russian conflict, there are a lot of people who are missing out on the fact that a very comprehensive control system is being erected all around us. And so I, I want to just walk you through a Twitter thread that I uh, picked up uh, yesterday. And, uh, and I, love, I love that there's a thread reader where you can, just, you can put in the address of a Twitter thread and it will just give you a nice, neat lineup of all the different little Twitter posts from that thread. And this is from Alexandros Marinos, who says, while everyone has their eyes on Ukraine, there is a comprehensive control system being erected all around us. And then he says, let's count the ways. First, there is a treaty being worked on on the level of the World Health Organization. The details have not been worked out yet, but the Director General of the World Health Organization is pushing for a binding treaty with the power to apply sanctions if two-thirds of the members agree. So this is a pandemic response pact that uh, is to prevent future disasters. Now, why is the World Health Organization pushing for a global pandemic treaty? But that's, I mean, th- what, it, what it sounds like is there is a one-size-fits-all approach. You know how there were, there were places, there were red states that had more freedoms during the pandemic that didn't lock it down and force everybody to wear masks and so forth. And there were, uh, there were blue states that, uh, you know, locked it down hard, regardless of what uh, the evidence, regardless of what the political science was telling them. But a one-size-fits-all approach essentially means, look, we're going to bind all the countries of the world, at least who are part or who are signatories to this treaty, to a centrally planned lockdown Can, or a centrally planned approach. Sorry, I, I, I said lockdown, but that's because I believe that's where they're going to go. Why wouldn't they? Well, it's all better if we're all on the same page here. So, yeah, let's all treat this like Australia did. Let's all treat it like Canada did. At least when people started pushing back and saying, we don't want these mandates. Can you see where that might lead to a problem? Okay, here's another system of control. And again, this is being put together right under our noses. But for some reason, it's not as emotion-driven and it's not as sensational. So the, the media is not, uh, they're not spotlighting this and probably for good reason. And that is Joe Biden ordering a study of cryptocurrency risks and a digital dollar. Oh, the risks of cryptocurrency. Yes, that people might actually control, you know, the funding that's in their hands. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty risky. Financial Times helpfully informs us that central bank digital currencies, such as the digital dollar, will be will have to be digital ID based. Since banks are already bound by know your customer and anti-money laundering regulations. Now, there's an added uh, downside to this, and that is if it's digital ID based, that means you're going to have to have a digital ID, which means your identity is going to become a government issued privilege. Well, how do we know that you're who you say you are? I mean, we're already living this to some extent. And some people would say, well, Brian, we already have driver's licenses. Go try to open a bank account or, or get a job without it. And you're right. 
but it doesn't make it right just because we're doing it. That's, you know, more steps towards total control being imposed upon us. Now, in this case, uh, you know, the the author here, uh, Alexandros Marinos, says it should be noted that these regulations don't actually seem very good at their stated purpose, but they do make excellent control mechanisms for law-abiding citizens. So what are central bank digital currencies? We've talked about this. In a way, it's like turning all money into food stamps. It can allow for all sorts of constraints to be placed on currency, including where, when, by whom, and on what it can be spent. And it's coming. And he links to articles. Here's one from The Telegraph. Bank of England tells ministers to intervene on digital currency programming, meaning digital cash could be programmed to ensure it's only spent on essentials or goods which an employer or government deems to be sensible. The Bank of England has called on ministers to decide whether a central bank digital currency should be programmable, ultimately giving the issuer control over how it is spent by the recipient. And Tom Mutton, a director at the Bank of England, said during a conference on Monday that programming could become a key feature of any central, any future central bank digital currency. So if you thought that Canada freezing the bank accounts linked to protests was scary... Well, central banks are constructing a power far greater, and that is an ability to intervene on every single transaction. Now, at the same time, there are vaccine passports still being implemented in the EU as well as in the U.S., and these technologies are getting implemented on technology that you already own and carry with you. For instance, Apple Wallet or your smartwatch. And if you think that uh, the COVID-19 vaccines were developed at miracle speeds, wait till you see the next generation. Now, there's, there's a whole list that he goes through here. I'm not going to have time to go through it, but these points of control are being put into place. And when people talk about turnkey totalitarianism, you know, it used to be there, well, that's just a conspiracy theory. But the point is, it's out in the open now. It's being put together. And this isn't about right versus left, conservatives and liberals. Because they've all moved the system in the same direction, giving bureaucrats more control over the population. Stop giving them more problems to solve because they only know one way. Control promises efficiency and safety while building at ever greater risk of inescapable systemic failure. Kind of like picking up pennies on the train tracks and just hoping this isn't your unlucky day. I think it's best that we pay close attention to this and not whatever shiny thing is being waved in front of our eyes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to take a minute here to tell you about lifesavingfood.com and in particular, invite you to click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com Pay close attention to the Ultimate Solar Power and Cooking Emergency Food Kit. This is pretty cool stuff. $599.99. Okay, we'll just round it up. $600. But this gets you food. It gets you the ability to uh, to cook, to, to clean your water. It gives you the ability to, to have solar power, to charge your digital devices and so forth. Very, very solid uh, kit for $599.99. Maybe this is something you need. Maybe it isn't. But to take a look at it, see how comprehensive it is. And if you're just getting started, 
this might be a very good jumping on place. That's lifesavingfood.com. Check it out. Maybe, maybe this is what you've been looking for. Well, have you started to recognize how the loudest complainers about misinformation in the U.S. seem to be the ones who are doing the most to spread that misinformation? And this is true on a lot of levels, but I've got a piece here from James Howard Kunstler that uh, really just cuts right to the chase. For instance, he asks the question, would our country be disappointed if Russia actually solved the problem of Ukraine? I mean, you would think you'd have every reason to think so. But he says it must be obvious by now that the biggest complainers about misinformation in the USA are the biggest spreaders of it. When you hear baseless and conspiracy theory, do you not automatically now send the rot of propaganda working through the delicate tissues of reality? Eventually, the stench of PSYOP is so sharp that it even wakes up the walking dead. And so he says, would our country be disappointed if Russia actually solves the problem of of Ukraine? Well, you'd think so. For one thing, we would be stuck having to face our own problems, especially the ones caused by lying to ourselves, such as the nearly unthinkable obscenity of having possibly poisoned a majority of the U.S. population with mRNA vaccines and killed hundreds of thousands of COVID-19 patients by withholding known effective treatments. What do you suppose we might do about that? Hold people accountable? James Howard Kunstler says the scale of this disaster is so enormous that the country can't even begin to process it. And it's not just us, by the way. It's all of Western civilization, which is more or less interchangeable with NATO, now the chosen instrument of distraction. Now, do any of these member nations have the stomach to face their own gross institutional failures? The answer is apparently not yet. Even in the face of emerging, uh, massive emerging data that the vaccines are a bust and have additionally injured and killed many people, the CDC is still urging Americans to vax up and boost up. So, by the way, does allegedly former President Barack Obama, who tested positive for the virus over the weekend despite being vaxxed to the max, who's going to tell them to stop digging the hole they're in before they dig all the way to China? This is the tweet from from Barack Obama. I just tested positive for COVID. I've had a scratchy throat for a couple of days, but I'm feeling fine otherwise. Michelle and I are grateful to be vaccinated and boosted, and she has tested negative. It's a reminder to get vaccinated if you haven't already, even as cases go down. Now, I've heard it said, and maybe somebody could set me straight on this, but, hey, uh, you know, they're talking about it's time for that fourth, uh, fourth jab. This is the same vaccine that you've gotten the first three times, right? Just checking. I'm just I'm just curious why one more is going to make a difference or if, if the efficacy fades that quickly. I mean, are, are we getting to the point where this is going to be a monthly thing? Like your Netflix subscription? I'm just asking. Back to the article here. James Howard Kunstler says, It's only a matter of time before the swindled public flips and realizes it has been subject to mass murder by bureaucrats, politicians, doctors, pharmaceutical companies, and purveyors of the news. They're all in this up to their necks, as are their corresponding officials in France, Germany, the U.K., etc. He says they're trying to sweep this enormous lump of depravity under the rug, hoping the masses of citizens will just leave the room. Now, they use the same playbook for Spygate and the 2020 election fraud, but the odor of those two exploits linger, too. CBS's 60 Minutes, brought to you by Pfizer, was still working the latest narrative failure Sunday night, 
attempting to defame special prosecutor and former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman's 2020 Wisconsin election report, which accused Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg of feloniously queering the vote by paying millions of dollars through a cutout charity organization to replace actual local officials with Democratic Party activists to run the machinery of the election. Nothing to see there, declared CBS frontman Bill Whitaker. Judge Gableman's report is just another conspiracy theory. Threatened by losing the war against its own citizens, the U.S. government now seeks a wider kinetic war over its would-be client state, Ukraine. And he says the stakes must be pretty high for Joe Biden and company to risk starting World War III. Why else inflame a dangerous situation by sending more weapons there? He says, I'll tell you why. To prolong Russia's operations to neutralize Ukraine so it won't cause further trouble to them or anyone else in the world. And the longer the U.S. can keep that going, the longer we can put off the various reckonings at home. Now, this is a hard truth, so I understand. If, if people don't want to agree with this, then okay, maybe, maybe this is something you're just not ready to consider. But James Howard Kunstler says America has no intention of actually defending Ukraine. It's really just a global version of the interpersonal game, let's you and him fight, as described by pioneering psychologist Eric Byrne, father of transactional analysis. The member nations of NATO have even less desire to join the battle and are doing a poor job of pretending they oppose Russia's disagreeable but necessary work there. So far, they have had to sacrifice desperately needed natural gas supplies from Russia. Now, you can be sure they'll find a way to sneak around U.S. sanctions and reverse the blunder. I mean, they have no choice, really, unless you want to go forward without any industries. Google up the paintings of Peter Bruegel the Elder, and you'll catch a glimpse of that possible European future. Of course, they'll also have to answer to their own citizens for the awful mistakes of COVID-19. So he says the best outcome, as others have pointed out, will be the disassembly of Ukraine into an eastern Russian zone, perhaps annexed into Russia and a rump western Ukraine state that will be as quiet and inoffensive as Moldova and Slovakia next door. When was the last time those two countries caused any trouble in the world? He says it would be best for everyone, and especially the third world, if the Russian operation is concluded as quickly as possible with a structured peace settlement, leaving the chance to get a Ukrainian grain crop planted, because otherwise a lot of innocent people will go hungry. Now, is the USA interested in a peace settlement, or do we want to drive events further toward tragedy and our own national suicide? Now, this is kind of a worst-case scenario that James Howard Kunstler is talking about. And I'm not suggesting that the only way we can see this is through the lens of the worst possible scenario. But I have, I've read this guy's writings for quite a while, and I think he's a pretty straight shooter. Doesn't mean he's infallible or, you know, incapable of being wrong, but he definitely calls it uh, pretty directly. And that's refreshing. It's a nice break. From, uh, from the narrative and the narrative managers who are insisting, no, 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 your eyes are deceiving you. You know, the, the sky really is green, and, and, and you're just, you just think it's blue. I don't share this with you to, to give you a sense of hopelessness, but just, just understand, you can only play dumb for so long. And I think that that time and the, the luxury of being able to just turn a blind eye to this sort of stuff is uh, it's rapidly getting away from us. Now, maybe for some people that sounds really radical, 
you know, oh my goodness, what are you talking about? Everything's going to be fine. I'm sorry, but but it's not. We're in the midst of a fourth turning. We're in the midst of the upheaval and the, the chaos that accompanies fourth turnings, particularly as they build to their climax. And usually it involves uh, war, it involves economic upheaval, it involves civic decay. I think we got all those things going on simultaneously. And, you know, by my reckoning, they're all intensifying pretty deeply. Now, there's a lot we can do at the individual level, starting with being the most solid, dependable, and decent person that you can be. So, don't sweat the stuff you can't control. Work on the stuff you can, but let's let's maintain some situational awareness. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you would like to subscribe to my show notes, I make it very easy for you. So listen closely. Go to thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on show notes. You can just start scrolling down. The show notes will pop up. Click on any of the day's show notes. And down at the bottom of the page, you'll see a great big subscribe button. Give me your email address and I will drop it in your email each morning when I publish my show notes. Now, oftentimes I will include articles that I don't have time to get to in the course of the show. But the reason I would encourage you to actually look at the show notes yourself, in fact, you know, I'm, I'm not telling you that I don't want to spend some time with you. I really do. But if you don't have time to sit and listen to all two hours of the program, that's fine. You do have time on your own time to click on those articles, go through, follow the links that they provide. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, everything that I'm sharing with you is the absolute, uh, you know, you have to believe this because it's just written in stone. But I spend my time really working to find the best, most credible, principled information. And I've, I've found some really good resources for wrong thinkers. If you're trying to get a good view of what's going on, I've been very blessed. And, and thankfully, you know, to listeners like you who share your sources with me, I've been directed to some just terrific sources. So if you need the down and dirty, here's what's going on. Here's what, uh, here's what you need to be aware of. Those show notes are a great way to do it. All right. Having said that, in spite of the gathering clouds overhead, there is some reason for optimism. I want to share with you part two of Robert Gore's essay, This Is Your Last Chance, which is a very detailed and, and yet somewhat encouraging summarization of what's coming. Now, it's a two-part series. I shared part one with you the other day. This is part two. Now, he says, supposedly, collectivists will reap the rewards of of the only things they produce, which is destruction and death. After the collapse, a a global collectivist government will replace the current multiplicity of collectivist governments. Most of the collapse's survivors will become slaves living on subsistence, subsistence rather, doled out by the small aristocracy that will rule the planet. I mean, he's talking great reset stuff here. The real work will be done by artificially intelligent machines. The slaves will be pacified chemically and electronically through ubiquitous virtual reality technologies and monitored ceaselessly while the aristocrats live in unimaginable splendor. Those who resist pacification and enslavement will be corrected or, if that fails, murdered. 
Now, he says that's simply a straight line projection of the present and recent past that ignores a fully evident counter trend still gathering steam. So this is the way that those who are trying to rule the world and the systems that are trying to rule us see things. This is how it's going to come down and, you know, you're going to obey. You'll own nothing and, and, and like it. You'll be happy with it. Not so, says Robert Gore. He's like, no, I, I don't think so. After a centuries-long bull market run, government as an institution has topped out. And he says the plans and predictions of the global totalitarians are the overconfident rationalizations of newly minted millionaires at the top of bull markets. The permanently high plateau in 1929, the new economy in in 2000, rather. House prices only go up in 2007. And the Fed's got our backs now. But he says we already have shining examples of totalitarian collectivist failure in really big countries with lots of people like the Soviet Union and communist China. The former collapsed after tens of millions died and the latter made a course correction towards more freedom after tens of millions died. Now, Robert Gore says blithering idiots attribute those failures to incomplete control by the totalitarians or claim collectivism can only work when the whole world is completely enslaved. But he says they ignore the core quandary of collectivist control. It produces nothing. Collectivist governments steal. They don't produce. A global collectivist government will produce exactly what the current multiplicity of collectivist governments produce, which is nothing. Yet this government will supposedly build the world back better from the ashes of financial, economic, and political collapse. He says collectivists have perfected a demand management technique that obscures but does not solve the productive inability of the economic systems over which they presided, which is murder a lot of people. So people are producers, so production shrinks faster than populations, exacerbated, exacerbated rather, by the collectivists' unerring ability to kill the most productive people. Today's collectivist killers plan to use the same demand management technique, but this time AI machines are supposedly going to make up the shortfall. Now, he says current AI technology isn't there yet, but somehow they believe a slave society will produce the innovations necessary to get it up to snuff. The absurdity of this presumption is captured in the contradiction in terms that will supposedly fill the gap, state science. State science is simply the approved propaganda of the moment propagated by state functionaries and cohorts mislabeled as scientists. For instance, the rampant convolutions, contortions, corrections, and prevarications that characterize the COVID travesty, climate change, and green energy. Now, as for slavery, here's a quote from Alexis de Tocqueville from Democracy in America, Volume 1. And this is the last word on economics that he offered back in 1835. Quote, it is true that in Kentucky the planters are not obliged to pay the slaves whom they employ, but they derive small profits from their labor, while the wages paid to free workmen would be returned with interest in the value of their services. The free workman is paid, but he does his work quicker than the slave, and the rapidity of execution is one of the great elements of economy. The white sells his services, but they are purchased only when they may be useful. The black can claim no remuneration for his toil. But the expense of his maintenance is perpetual. He must be supported in his old age as well as in manhood, in his profitless infancy as well as in his productive years of youth, in sickness as well as in health. Payment must be equally made in order to obtain the services of either class of men. The free workman 
receives his wages in money, the slave in education, in food, in care, and in clothing. The money which a master spends in the maintenance of his slaves goes gradually and in detail, so that it is, it is scarcely perceived. The salary of the free workman is paid in a round sum and appears to enrich only him who receives it, but in the end, the slave has cost more than the free servant, and his labor is less productive. Now, I'm just asking you, make the translation in your mind. He's not just talking about chattel slavery of the early 19th century. These same principles would apply to slavery in the 21st century, even if it's more of a virtual slavery of, you know, the Great Reset, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. So the slaves will own nothing because they'll produce next to nothing, says Robert Gore. It's doubtful they'll be any happier with that state of affairs than slaves have been in the past. Turning again to the historical record, the accomplishments of state science and industry are almost an undetectable molehill compared to the Everest of innovations and wealth flowing from free scientific inquiry and production. Picking through this meager molehill, one finds that many state accomplishments are merely new and improved ways to kill people. So, setting aside straight-line projections, what's actually coming is a history's greatest trend change. Total financial, economic, intellectual, and moral collapse. Okay, now that's scary, right? The staggering sum of global debt, unfunded liabilities, and derivatives is is in the quadrillions, a double-digit multiple of global production. The numbers are so large and opaque that a more precise estimate for that multiple cannot be derived. Every asset and stream of income is already pledged as collateral, often several times, or they'll be de facto collateral as governments' bankruptcies and rapacity mount. They'll steal whatever they can get their hands on. What most of the world reckons as wealth is somebody else's debt or equity. So insolvency will quickly work its way through the daisy chain. So much for financialization. And like financial and economic collapse, intellectual and moral collapse will center on governments. Billions of people indoctrinated in some version of status dogma will look to governments as the solution for the government-created apocalypse. Courtier intellectuals, media lights, corporate shills, and other minions and toadies will be scurrying like cockroaches in a filthy kitchen when the lights are turned on. Their voluminous output of putrid, state-worshipping dreck will have exactly the same value as fiat debt and currencies. Today's thought leaders are circling the drain. They're on the wrong side of history, and they'll take billions of devout believers in government omniscience and omnipotence with them. Fat, crony collectivist corporations, all the way down to those subsisting on some form of state-granted transfer payments, will find the government teat withered and barren. The the delusory notion that bankrupt governments can provide universal basic incomes will be treated with the universal derision it deserves. He says, look, government has been collapsing under its own weight for decades. If one were to graph its overall strength, the U.S. government at the end of World War II was peak government. The U.S. empire was at its unchallenged economic, political, and military apex. Vietnam... Nixon's abandonment of the gold standard, the fall of the USSR, the war on terror, the Patriot Act, and the COVID insanity would mark some of the downward inflection points since. So, history will probably look back on the Biden Camarilla's fraudulent ascension to power as the final sharp break, the demarcation of the vertiginous crash. He says it's hard to imagine that the institution that plays such a huge part in all of our lives will simply be rubble against the chaos and ruins, but few people foresaw the end of the Soviet state either. Straight-line projections don't yield such predictions. 
I know there's some bad news, but did, did you see the good news in there as well? Okay, just checking. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm going to come back with just a couple more uh, excerpts from Robert Gore's article. This is your last chance, part two. This is the good news, okay? If you, if you were able to make it through the last segment without uh, wanting to slit your wrists, I promise it will be worth it in this segment. First, let me thank the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I want to tell you how much I appreciate them being a sponsor of this show for making it possible for me to, to spend my time finding and disseminating the best truth that I can get my hands on. And if you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, I don't have to tell you this is the hottest real estate market that most of us have ever seen. So when you need to get your home loan, when you find the home of your dreams, you got to get that financing squared away right now. This is where you need to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Decades of experience in the loan industry to get you the loan you need and do it quickly. Call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, stop by 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So back to this article by Robert Gore, this is your last chance. He says, uh, the message to those who rule and are trying to implement their global consolidation is this. This is your last chance to save your own skins. Nothing is going to stop the collapse, but you can at least abandon your nefarious project in its totalitarian blueprint. It's your only chance to avoid the Sarlacc pit, and that's a slim chance indeed. Collapse will focus your victims' attention on their ruination and your responsibility for it. You'll be lucky to escape their retribution. Your odious class has always hid your failures and tried to shift the blame, but that game is up. So, the seeds have been sown. I think we're at the point where, where collapse of a number of different systems is very, very likely. This has happened before. This is why I refer to fourth turnings as, you know, it's, it's a cycle that plays out about every 80 to 120 years, basically a very long lifetime, and there's one playing out right now. But as always happens after cataclysms, the survivors will rebuild. The human race is a hardy bunch with previous equity, debt, and its corresponding credit assets wiped out and many real assets destroyed in mayhem and chaos. There will be little capital to fund their efforts. This means capital will be earned and rebuilt the old-fashioned way. Consumption less than production generating savings invested in enterprises whose returns compound the savings. So with governments either broke or wiped out, emergent groups in smaller geographic areas will have to look to their own resources for protection. Now, on the other hand, they'll be unencumbered by the confiscatory taxes, stifling laws and regulations, rampant corruption, big brother surveillance, perpetual violence, and general idiocy we now take for granted among governments. There will be a decentralized multiplicity of new political arrangements and subdivisions from chaotic black holes to well-ordered enclaves. And the success of the latter will be due to the freedom they embrace, the individual rights they protect, and their ability to defend their enclaves. New industries, technologies, modes of commerce, and ways of life will emerge. This will be the true Great Reset, not the Klaus Schwab version, which only recycles failed concepts of centralized power and collective subjugation on a larger scale. I get it. This is, this is 
kind of a heavy thing to contemplate. But Robert Gore says, brace for impact. The collapse is well underway and will soon hit its inflection point, if it hasn't already. And this is interesting. I like how he points out it will be a test of character unlike anything we've faced before. It was Jabba the Hutt and his creepy cohorts, Planet Tatooine's establishment, who were blown to smithereens and cast into the Sarlacc pit. Our enemy's greatest weakness, the arrogant stupidity of evil and the crumbling bulwark of lies behind which it lies. It hides, rather. These are the allies of Samuel Adams, irate, tireless minority, keen to set brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. Our greatest weapon, the magnificently defiant human spirit that stands on the plank above the abyss and shouts, Jabba, this is your last chance. Free us or die. I know, we don't live in a Star Wars movie. But I am very focused on what comes next, and I'm encouraging you. Rather than trying to fix the system as it is, it may be time to accept that the system itself is so filled with rot that it may be unfixable. And if that's the case, then maybe what we need to do is focus on whatever comes next. Even if that means building closer to where you are rather than looking for some broad, overreaching national solution. I don't know what the solution is going to look like where you stand. But I'm doing everything in my power to be the kind of individual who can be counted on to do the right thing for the right reasons under all circumstances. And you can scoff if you want, but people who do that will find that the world is measurably improved right there where they're standing and it doesn't have to be something that's accepted by everybody. All right, I'm going to shift gears. Just one more thing I wanted to mention. I'm going to include a link to uh, Glenn Greenwald's uh, latest essay. Oh, boy. This one, I, I really try to live without carrying contempt for people in my heart. But then I hear about uh, Mitt Romney's smear of Tulsi Gabbard as, as a traitor, uh, guilty of treason, because she's questioning the narrative. She's committing narrative violations, you know, uh, concerning Russia and Ukraine. And I think, yep. I'm, I'm having a hard time fighting back those feelings of, of contempt for, uh, for a guy who is, is the, the epitome of the, the political chameleon. And the thing that I'm inviting you to do here not, is not so much, let's, let's all get mad at Mitt Romney. I think most people, you know, most thinking people are already kind of there with, oh, yeah, he's, he's part of the machinery. But it's to, to notice that the criminalization of dissent is escalating to the point that we're actually starting to hear people referred to as traitors. Here's what uh, Glenn Greenwald has to say. He says, The founders limited treason in the Constitution due to grave concerns that it would be weaponized in order to criminalize dissent. And that's exactly how the term is now being used. Glenn Greenwald says, The crime of treason is one of the gravest that an American citizen can commit, if not the gravest. It's one of the very few crimes other than murder for which execution is still a permissible punishment under both U.S. federal law and the laws of several states. The framers of the U.S. Constitution were so concerned about the temptation to abuse this term by depicting political dissent as criminalized betrayal of one's country that they chose to define and limit how this crime could be applied by inserting this limiting paragraph into the Constitution itself, reflecting the gravity and temptation to abuse accusations of treason. It's the only crime they chose to define in the U.S. Constitution. Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution states, 
Quote, Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court. End quote. That's pretty, uh, pretty amazing, wouldn't you say? Treason was the only crime explicitly defined and limited by the founders because they sought to guard against the historic use of treason prosecutions by repressive governments to silence otherwise legitimate political opposition. In other words, the grave danger anticipated by the founders was that treason would radically expand to include any criticisms or opposition to official U.S. government policy activities they sought in the Bill of Rights to enshrine as an inviolable right of U.S. citizenship, not to turn it into a capital crime. Now, there have not been that many cases of treason that have actually been prosecuted throughout U.S. history. Although there have been some accusations thrown around here uh, here lately, uh, especially since about uh, 2016 when Donald Trump won, you know, the presidency. So Greenwald goes into a lot of detail over what's happened in in the last few years, but isn't it something that Mitt Romney would tweet out something like, Tulsi Gabbard is parroting false Russian propaganda. Her treasonous lies may well cost lives. And I know there's uh, there's a lot of hay being made right now out of, well, you know, she at least served in the military. What about you, Mitt? How many draft deferments did you receive? Was it five? You know, so you didn't have to go to Vietnam? Okay, that that's the wrong tree to be barking up. Although it's it is a good point to you know you know that you you really don't have the moral high ground that you think you have, Mister Romney. But if there is any, Glenn Greenwald points out, if there's any one overarching defining hallmark of a tyrannical culture, it is the refusal to tolerate any dissent from or questioning of government policy, official government policy, and to criminalize such dissent by equating it with treason. Indeed, he says many of the same Americans who are doing this, exactly this, they love to flamboyantly express horror as Russia does the same against its war opponents. Now, it's extremely difficult, he says, if not impossible, to find any despot in history who does not weaponize accusations of treason against dissidents as a central instrument for control. That U.S. discourse has now descended completely to that level is barely debatable. Just look at the last few days of treason accusations against Gabbard to say nothing of the last six years of liberal anti-Trump mania to see how acceptable and reflexive such behavior has become. I've got a link in the show notes to this article. Check it out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Just want to get this clear from the very uh, beginning of this segment. My job is not to tell you what to think. My job is not to think for you. All I'm trying to do is encourage you to think as deeply and clearly and independently as you possibly can about the various things going on around us. Because there is a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And I'm doing my best not to muddy the already muddy waters. 
So if you are ready to revel in wrong think by questioning the narratives, I, I, I heard the phrase this morning and I've, I've, I've adopted, I've embraced it, narrative violation. So this, this program is built on narrative violations. And if you're not afraid of damaging your social credit score, well, then pull up a chair, find courage, find camaraderie with your fellow wrong thinkers. And let's, let's get down to talking about some of the things that really matter. In fact, I want to start with something. If this, this is going to raise a few people's blood pressure, but it is such a great point. I just had to lead out with this in this hour. Saw this tweet from David McBride that just hit home especially with all the talk about what's going on in Ukraine and, you know, are you showing sufficient support? Or are, you, uh, are you indifferent to the plight of the Ukrainian people? And this is what he says. He says, I have been asked if I think the invasion of Ukraine is illegal. And he says, my answer is, if we don't hold our own leaders to account, we can't hold other leaders to account. If the law is not applied consistently, it's not the law. It's simply an excuse we use to target our enemies. So for those who've been wondering, you know, Brian, it seems to me you've taken kind of an anti-Ukrainian slant. No, 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 not at all. My heart is very much with the Ukrainian people and those who are likewise suffering under unjust government violence. But I'm not going to pretend that somehow our government has found the, the moral high ground because they're condemning, you know, Putin going into Ukraine. You know, they would have a stronger moral case if some of those leaders were to, uh, I don't know, take ownership of the fact that they invaded and destroyed Iraq, that they invaded and destroyed much of Afghanistan, and that they continue to drone strike and bomb and otherwise interfere with and make people's lives hell in Libya and uh, Somalia and Pakistan and other various places, Syria. I mean, for crying out loud, they don't have moral high ground. And until they do, until they they admit, look, I was wrong, I'm sorry, maybe they take the honorable way and they, you know, solve the problem with a short, sharp sword. I don't know. But they most definitely do not have the moral high ground. So I thought that was a really good answer to, to the question. Do you think the invasion of Ukraine is illegal? What does it matter if you're not willing to hold our leaders accountable for the exact same kind of behavior? All right, now that I got your blood pressure going, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about how, you know, the biggest crisis of the day isn't military conflict, believe it or not. It's not a virus, believe it or not. The biggest crisis is the fact that we have a public that is so easily and seamlessly led from one crisis into the next. Now, Jeffrey Tucker has a great explanation of how public opinion ended COVID, but then it started the next thing. He says a new poll publicized on Fox News reports most Americans back Russian oil sanctions, even with soaring gas prices. He says the incredible number is 77 percent. Now, that means, of course, that many people are actually making some connection between the sanctions and the price of gas, forgetting that gas prices rose 50 percent before the sanctions. And these timelines, for whatever reason, tend to elude people. Also, inflation is infecting every area of life, not just gasoline. So it's politically helpful to have a scapegoat. And it also appears that the Russia-Ukraine war is helping Biden, who's faced an epic decline in job approval. The White House surely welcomes this as well. 
And by the way, he includes the real clear uh, politics uh, poll of President Biden's job approval. And by gosh, he does have a little bit of a spike. He's, well, I think he's back up over 40%. Well, he's at 42, almost 43% approval. But the headline and trend here, says Jeffrey Tucker, reminds me of many headlines from the spring of 2020 when lockdowns began. They were all promoted by big media. The polls showed a clear willingness of people to comply with even the most egregious lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, if health officials declared that they were essential. Now, that percentage was 67%, and this declined to only 50% by November of 2020, which illustrates just how incredibly slowly public opinion adapted to reality. Jeffrey Tucker says the cynical among us, and these days that includes just about every thinking person, would observe that the virus strategy for creating political upheaval and acquiescence to authority worked like a charm. Tell people there's an invisible enemy out there that can and will likely slay any person who contracts it, and the only way to avoid it is to stop living life freely, and any state can, under the right conditions, create mayhem and elicit tremendous public compliance. But he says today, however, matters are very different. After two years, public opinion has dramatically reversed. Now keep that in mind. And keep in mind that as recently as the, as the last week of February of 2022, data indicated that deaths attributed to COVID, if these are and ever were credible numbers nationwide, are roughly the same as they were during the most intense lockdowns of late March 2020. Actually, cases and deaths are higher than they were in the summer of 2020, when public opinion showed mass support for lockdowns. Now, based on the data, then, there's no reason for this dramatic shift. There will be years of study and research to do, but it appears that no amount of political intervention changed much or anything about the trajectory either way, despite every promise. That's a hard truth, isn't it, right? The public panic achieved nothing except to acculturate people to political control. And yet the fear that was never justified seems to be largely gone. Now, Jeff Tucker says, look, there's for sure, there's a reason to be suspicious of these polls. They're all biased by people's willingness to say what they think they're supposed to say. And that, in turn, is very much influenced by media pressure, which feeds into peer pressure and finally what people are willing to tell pollsters on the phone. The polled are not always defiant people who are willing to buck conventional wisdom. And for this reason, polls often reflect what people think they're supposed to believe rather than what people actually believe. But he says the relationship here is also complex. If public opinion turns dramatically against a certain policy action, politicians start to become nervous. Not even deep state ambitions to create a permanent state of emergency can stand up to it. That appears to be what happened, and quite suddenly with COVID rules and vaccine mandates, both of which unraveled quickly and in ways that some elite interests clearly opposed. When Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City mandated that the entire city population be vaccinated to enjoy public accommodations, it was not supposed to be temporary. But after so much noncompliance and public anger, in addition to declining commerce and arts, something had to change. The mandates that had spread to Boston, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, and New Orleans all began to unravel. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says we should be grateful to Americans for Prosperity and YouGov for finally conducting a poll to assess the people's current willingness to comply with virus impositions. And the results are encouraging on their face and provide something of an insight into what has changed. The mood of the public either drove the change or reflected the change in regime prior priorities. Take your pick. But regardless, the shift is dramatic.
And from here, he goes through a very extensive list of results. 43% of Americans feel their protest rights are less secure. Only 9% say they're more secure. 42% of Americans feel their ability to voice their opinion has diminished since the start of the pandemic. Only 12% say their opinion has become more secure. Get this, more than one in three Americans feel their religious liberties are less secure. Only 10% say that they're more secure. 49% of people say their trust in the CDC has gone down or slightly down since the start of the pandemic. 41% of Americans say their trust in Congress is way down. And the list goes on and on. Now, the results point to one conclusion. Between one half and two thirds of the public believe that the pandemic response was an enormous flop and that their own liberties are now far less secure than they were before. And further, none of it worked to achieve the goal of stopping the the virus. Now, that's a devastating indictment on the biggest expansion of government power and control in our lifetimes. One that happened not only in the U.S., but almost everywhere in the world. Jeffrey Tucker says, do you wonder how COVID could have so completely disappeared from media coverage and public life so quickly and decisively? Public opinion made a huge contribution. As a result, the people who gave us these policies have unleashed a kind of economic, cultural, and social malady now to to get everyone to forget that it ever happened. So without apologies or regrets, he says, the Washington Post is running articles that point out schools that never locked down fared better than those who did. This is how the truth is going to gradually leak out over the coming months and years. Somehow, despite every promise by the great experts, the glorious triumph of this brilliant policy never arrives, and people are left to live with the carnage which just piles higher and higher with each successive round of manipulation, compulsion, false promises, and resulting disaster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com is one of my uh, sponsors. And I don't know if you or someone you know is into sewing, but uh, somebody should be. I'm just guessing that uh, one of the great aspects of this, in addition to being able to create beautiful and lasting things that become a part of your family heritage, quilts, for example is also the ability to uh, either fix or to uh, fabricate your own clothing. And, you know, I, I know that uh, those of us who grew up in the 70s, right, when mom was dressing me in tough skins and homemade shirts and stuff, I didn't always like the shirts that she made. But the technology of how to really put together good clothing and good sewing, is it's so much better because of the machines. And if you don't believe me, go to their website, SewingQuiltingCenter.com. If you're in St. George, Utah, stop into their store. Talk to Teresa and Eric Alsop. They're the new owners of this store, and they are just wonderful people who will not only sell you the very best sewing machines, embroidery machines, long-arm quilting machines possible, but will train you how to use them and service your machines when they need service. uh, Teresa is a trained technician. She can fix it all. I'm very grateful to have them as a sponsor of this program. Well, are you ready for a, a straight-up red pill? I've got one for you that uh, is, it's, it's very brief, but it, uh, it really gets right to the heart of the matter. And this is, uh, this is from, I, I've not heard of, the, of this writer before. Uh, it's, it's a pen name, Eugippius. 
A Plague Chronicle. And the, the article here is titled, Tomas, po- Tomas Poyo, Lockdown Thinkfluencer, Issues an Edict on the Ukraine. And Eugipius says, believe me when I tell you that the climatists, the Ukrainists, the Covidians, the mass migrationists, the anti-racists, they're all expressions of the same malign force. See if you can spot the similarities here. Tomas Poyo says, the West is not a place. It is a state of mind. Those who use it mean the places where we believe in human rights. That's why the war in Ukraine matters to the West. It's not just an attack on Western soil. It's an attack on Western values. Now, on its surface, I mean, that would kind of make sense. Well, yeah, man, that's yeah, their, their values are being attacked and, you know, Putin is to blame. But listen to what uh, Eugipius has to say here. First and foremost, the Western Borg is not a place. It's a state of mind. And as it expands across the world, it aims to rob other places of their placehood, too, and assimilate them to the same shallow, diffuse, global consumerist project. Hey, wait a minute. I thought we were the good guys. Okay, all right. Hang on. Hang on. He says the Western Borg likes to conceive of itself as post-national and post-political. Its values, its conception exist on a higher plane like religious or philosophical truths. They are about freedom and democracy and peace and human rights. Yet people in the West do not have much voice in government. They are not free. The Western Borg instigates wars across the world, and Western-assimilated governments do not care about anybody's rights. I'm, I'm trying to get, I think I'm looking at uh, an image here of French police stomping on a protester and uh, attacking him with a police dog and with big old batons. Now, it could be in the Netherlands. It could be in, uh, I don't know, it, it could be, almost, it's, it's not American, but his point is well taken. How many times have you seen police cracking down on these protesters, standing up for freedoms? Mm. I'm not talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter protests. I'm talking about people saying we don't want to be mandated, you know, to get the jab or lose my job or, or otherwise, you know, pushed around. So when you hear that, uh, you know, the West is sacred ground and we have the sacred values of democracy and that's what we're spreading to the world. Not so fast. The words don't match up with the actions of these governments. In fact, uh, Eugipius says, these are just the words with which the Western Borg seeks to disguise its imperialist, autocratic tendencies. Now, Eugipius says, unlike some of you, I prefer to see the actions of the Borg as essentially undirected and the result of internal dynamics. It arises from a lot of separate forces, among them prosperity and technology, the complexity of mass society and its management, and the universal claims of the liberal democrat political con- tradition. Rather, All of its ideological obsessions and propaganda narratives either further or express its totalizing project in some way. I know, I'm asking you to consider something that is likely causing some pretty severe discomfort for some people. What if our government isn't the good guys? You notice I didn't say, what if we are not the good guys? I'm trying to make a very careful distinction here between our government and us. And I can't count how many times people have told me, Brian, we are the government. That's the system that we live under. Do we really? Is that the system? If that's the case, please, by all means, name for me any piece of public policy that you have personally forwarded and seen passed into law. 
Do you have that power? I mean, you may see rare exceptions, but for the most part, the influence that shapes the direction of government policy, and I'm just going to use America, for example, it does not come from the public. It doesn't come from the citizenry. I'm thinking it was the Pew Research Center that did some some research on this back in 2015. And they found that, uh, nope, if you want to look at where the influence over public policy originates, it starts with moneyed special interests. And you think about uh, how, well, isn't that fortunate? You know, this, this group donated millions of dollars to this particular, you know, congressional caucus or to these members of Congress. And somehow all the policies seem to come out in favor of what their pet project is. I think this is very true of of, uh, environmental groups in particular. But they're certainly not alone. The idea is that, uh, yeah, yeah, you can buy policy. You can buy a congressman. Wink, wink. It doesn't take that much. You just got to have the right connections. You and I, on the other hand, we might get a handshake and maybe a photo op with our favorite politician. But unless you're standing there with a healthy check in your hand to help that politician stay in power, the chances of you influencing any kind of policy are very, very slim. Does that sound a little bit cynical? Yeah, it probably does. But I think that is more reflective of reality than the idea that we are the government and therefore, you know, what we say goes and we're keeping government in check. When's the last time that you really felt that government was in check? I mean, I don't want to sound too radical here, but uh, I'll confess, I spend every waking minute of every day focused on living my life as freely and independent of government influence as possible. Now, unfortunately, living in the world that we live in and governed by the uh, you know laws of a fallen world, uh, it's, it's impossible to be completely free of that government influence. But nonetheless, while some people are obsessing about, you know, shrinking their carbon footprint... No, I'm trying to shrink my governmental footprint. I want to have as little to do with government as possible. I want to minimize its impact in my life in every way possible. And the crazy thing about it is, what I'm describing here is absolutely peaceful behavior. I'm not going out there and throwing firebombs and, you know, spray painting and beating people because you didn't chant in unison with me. I just want to be left alone. I just don't want to have to ask permission for every peaceful thing that I want to do in my life. But I promise you, I would be seen and portrayed as a radical above many of the folks out there who, uh, you know, who don't agree with this. It's okay. I've been misunderstood before. I've been called names before. I've been denounced. I don't care. But I, I take it as a point of personal honor. To, to stand for personal freedom, freedom of conscience, free enterprise in the free market, private property rights. I stand for all of that. And, I, and I'm grateful for those people who likewise have made that a center point of their lives. It's not that not that we're we're spending all of our time obsessing over government so much as I'm obsessing over living as freely as I can, which means I'm not asking permission at every turn. Mother, may I? You know, to go about living my life. Now, if that sounds dangerous and radical, I don't know what to say to help you, but I'll tell you, I find a lot of happiness in it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out to HSLAmmo.com. I've got a link in my show notes. You can go right to their website. Look, I, I have loved the shooting sports for a long time. And I had the opportunity just a little over a year ago to uh, spend some time on the range with Spencer Worthington. He is the founder of HSLAmmo.com. I got to tell you something that really impressed me about Spencer. He's an impressive guy anyway. And he, and I, he and I have been friends for, for a while. But I watched as he interacted with shooters of all different ages there at the range. And this guy is not only a, a businessman who's created a very uh, worthwhile and productive business, an ammo manufacturing company. He employs a, a good workforce. He pays them well. He takes care of them. But, boy, he is one of the best ambassadors for the Second Amendment that I have ever seen in that he really sincerely tries to help people learn the skills and learn the, the safety and, and the appreciation of skilled arms. So why am I singing his praises? Well, in part, I'm doing it because he's a sponsor of the show, but I also want you to understand... You have options when it comes to, to buying ammo. I'm just going to suggest if you're looking to, to get ammunition, take a look at HSL Ammo. Click on their website. Do business with them if possible. You will be supporting a great company as well as a truly great individual who has done a lot for the Southern Utah community and the uh, shooting sports in that area as well. All right, moving on here. You know, educational reform is kind of a hot-button issue for a lot of folks right now, right? Teaching of CRT in schools and this, this inexplicable need to, to teach five-year-olds about masturbation and whatever. I mean, I don't know why there is such a huge push to sexualize and to introduce deviant behavior to kids as early as possible. But it sure is a far cry from the days where, hey, look, you know, we may have different, uh, you know, inclinations here, but I just want to be left alone. And it is this activism that really has me puzzled. You know, why Why the public school system? And, and maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems to me it's, it's the idea that, well, they have a captive audience. You know, the kids have to be there. Otherwise, the truancy laws come into play, and so parents, we need you to send your kids. What better place if you wanted to corrupt young minds than a place where kids, by law, have to be. A place that is ruled by bureaucracy. Sorry, I'm, I, I hope, you know, if you're, if you're part of the public school establishment, I'm trying not to paint with too broad of a brush here, but let's face it, activism has made our public school systems a battleground of sorts. And if you've ever wondered what, uh, what some people mean by calling for education reform, see, I believe in school choice, and I think separating school and state would actually bring about the kind of school choice that would solve a lot of these problems. But when you hear other people talk about, uh, well, we need education reform, what exactly does that mean? Well, here's an article by E. Jeffrey Ludwig, The Four Pillars of Vacuity. And this is one worth your time. He says, the recently appointed New York City Schools Chancellor, David Banks, portrays himself as righteous, an idealist, and a reformer. According to him, he's a man with a vision to make right a broken system. Now, it's a given of new hires to this position that they portray themselves as men who can and will put Humpty Dumpty together again. Yet as soon as the so-called smart and experienced persons start to enunciate their vision, we hear only pap and sassiness, or sappiness rather. Their comments seem to lack substance, knowledge, experience, and wisdom. 
Plain and simple, they are bureaucrats hired to bring sound and fury, but signifying nothing, as William Shakespeare put it. Chancellor Banks has publicly announced his vision, supporting what he calls the four pillars of his visionary policy. Under Pillar 1, reimagining the student experience. He asks us, why don't we provide the kind of experiences where kids can't wait to get up in the morning to get to school? Now, to have this question as his opening shot at so-called reform should alarm the reader immediately. Very few students at any age can't wait to get to school. To posit that as a goal is totally unrealistic. Has he forgotten that we have compulsory education in public schools? That means that lawfully elected legislators for a long time believed that it was for the good of our society that all children go to school, whether they or their parents want them to or not. In fact, he says, during my father's era, students could stop attending in the daytime at age 14. Now, in most states, it's 16 or 17. Compulsory attendance assumes that many people would choose not to go to school and that their parents would support that idea or even be sources of that idea. Now, this was to eliminate child abuse, and it was to reduce the size of the labor force to help keep wages up. For some, compulsory education was a humanitarian decision, as they observed the tired faces of children who sometimes worked 60-plus hours a week. So Chancellor Banks must end his Pollyanna view about happy time. He tells us that in order to make schools more happy places, there will be early college credit. Now, this writer taught in one community college where they had early college credit. High school students would take classes while in high school and would graduate from community college and high school at the same time. He says, I didn't see a classroom of happy students, but rather a class of sloppily dressed, careless and nonchalant students whose attitudes suggested that they were doing the college or the teacher a favor being there. Furthermore, he says, I was not allowed to give a grade any lower than C+ and could only give one or possibly two of them. In another school where he taught in the 1990s, there was also a commitment to getting students into good jobs to the extent that one of the teachers did not teach at all, but spent her time hanging out, but spent her time in a research room where students could hang out doing nothing or getting help from her in filling out job applications. Banks pillar number two is about reimagining learning. Here he talks about schools that are shining, the -the state-of-the-art knowledge sharing, and incentivizing schools to share their best practices. Pillar 2 is one platitude after another. Pillar 3 for Banks is prioritizing wellness. He mentions school safety, mental health, attendance, and enrichment. Now this jibes with an objective view of many schools, especially high schools or academy schools, School safety officers are everywhere. Metal detectors checking for weapons and acting out by disturbed teens and kids is commonplace. At one point in New York City, the author says, I told a second grader that he's not allowed to stand on a table, and he yelled, I can stand anywhere I want. Enrichment at one New York City junior high where he substituted consisted of confiscating chains and metal clubs from a class of fifth graders. When the armful of confiscated weaponry was brought to the principal's office, he said he could do nothing unless he had the names of the students from whom they were taken. However, the students would not give me their names. So the principal had me leave the weaponry on top of his file cabinet. Lastly, in high schools in New York City, school safety officers have peace officer status, and while they are unarmed, they carry handcuffs and are allowed to arrest recalcitrant students. Lastly, pillar number four for our city's new wise educational leader is engaging families to be our true partners, a powerful pathway to building trust. 
Now, the author taught at a New York City high school with 670 mostly at-risk students enrolled. Now, this was in the 1990s when society was more unified than it is today. And on a special meet the principal night at the school, he says, I was the only teacher who showed up along with only one parent to meet with the principal. At least 25% of the students lived in no-parent homes with an aunt or a grandma who worked as a caregiver or home health companion in Long Island during the week. And the students simply had a key to their aunt's or their granny's apartment. Another 40% at least had become, had, had the a classic, rather, single-parent home. One mom told me she didn't want her son to become a dummy and she broke into tears. He always cut school but was in the youth choir of a church pastored by a friend of mine. He says, despite his mother's tears, he was one day shot and killed outside their apartment building. So E. Jeffrey Ludwig says, look, in addition to reviewing Banks' vision, it seems reasonable to note my biases in terms of educational theory. He says, I've been influenced by E.B. Hirsch, whose writings are concerned with the body of knowledge being imparted to students. Now, of course, his emphasis is that there be a body of knowledge, not merely the social justice ideal that originated with John Dewey at the turn of the 20th century, which has also been the keystone of progressive ideation since the 1920s. He says, also, I've reviewed and loved Bruce Dietrich Price's Saving K-12, through as well as his various blog pieces and articles. He knows that phonics is the key to reading success and that the old math with its required memorizations, not the new math or the new new math, is the key to arithmetical proficiency. So here's his conclusion. E. Jeffrey Ludwig says, look, instead of Banks's four pillars, We need officials who publicly and emphatically state and stand behind the statement that dumbing down of our students is an outrage against the taxpayers and against the aspirations and needs of our youth. We are either committed to a reasonable, knowledgeable, and moral people, or we are not. The four pillars only obscure the true needs of our violent, dumbed-down schools. See, stuff like this always carries a little more weight with me when it's coming from an educator. And then this writer, E. Jeffrey Ludwig, is a lifelong educator and writer who's appeared four times in Who's Who Among America High School Teachers. It's, it's not like this guy's just some disinterested bystander, some homeless guy holding a squeegee and, you know, shouting what he thinks from the side of the road. Again, I think the, the real solution is going to be separation of school and state. And that's something that even a lot of very conservative people are just not ready to contemplate. But until that happens, I don't think you're going to see real choice in education. And the problem is going to persist. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And thank you again just for giving this program a chance. If you're a first-time listener, I get it. I'm laying some pretty heavy stuff on you right now. And uh, there's a lot of it that I would expect would send some people running screaming for the hills. Frankly, sometimes I find myself wanting to run screaming for the hills. But I truly believe that uh, we, we can face the hard facts. We can acknowledge all the difficulties in front of us. And we can still make some very reasoned judgments about what we can do, what's within our sphere of influence And I think that's where our attention needs to be. I also think we have to be aware that uh, there's a lot of distraction going on out there. And just because everybody may be chanting in unison over this subject or that subject 
doesn't mean that you're a bad person if you don't participate. In fact, frankly, I think that uh, this is this is where you have to be willing to separate yourself from the crowd. Not because you're better than them, not because you're smarter and they're all stupid and evil, but just because you are paying attention to things that other people either choose not to see or would prefer they didn't have to contemplate. So I'm, I'm not going to pretend that, uh, you know, facing the truth is something that, oh, well, anybody can do that. No, no, not anybody will do that. The reason being is it takes legitimate courage to face some of the problems that we're seeing right now. And I, I'm not trying to tell you that, uh, you know, we can just magically, you know, think positive thoughts and it's all going to go away. I think that right now we're facing a very critical period in American history and in, in the world's history for that matter. But I also believe that you and I have distinctive personal roles that we need to play. And I'm going to go so far as to suggest that I believe God has placed us at this time and place for purposes that he understands perfectly, but that we don't yet understand or that we're only beginning to grasp. And if I can just scare you one more time, I think God has confidence that uh, you and I are up to whatever task he has given each one of us individually. But the key is we've got to be willing to ask for some help to do that. So with that in mind, I'm going to move on to another topic here. Look, electric vehicles are fast. They're quiet. They're supposedly good for the environment as long as you don't think too hard about how the batteries are made. (laughs) where the electricity comes from. Does that come from a coal-fired plant? Nonetheless, I found a great commentary on the contradictions and confusion of getting Americans to buy electric cars. This is from Adam Thierer and Christopher Kaiser, and this was published in DiscourseMagazine.com. The subtitle here, Politicians want gas guzzlers off the roads, but their policies waste money, distort markets, and often work at cross-purposes. So the authors say, with one hand the government giveth, with the other it taketh away. That's the way electric vehicle policy works in much of America today. States shower electric vehicle makers with subsidies to boost the technology or persuade them to build factories there. States also entice drivers to go electric with tax credits, rebates, and other handouts. At the same time, many states limit the ability of manufacturers to sell vehicles directly to consumers in an effort to protect local car dealerships. This goes back to that lobbying power we were talking about earlier in the show. They say the conflicting policies come at the public's expense, and the economic rationale for them is dubious because the idea that electric vehicles help the environment is unpersuasive. Instead of putting their thumbs down on both sides of the scale, politicians would do better to let innovation arise from market competition. Alas, they seem to be driving in the wrong direction. First, consider the restrictions on sales. In 17 states, it is a crime for any car maker to sell vehicles directly to drivers. In 10 other states, only ele- the only, uh, only electric vehicle company, Tesla, is allowed to sell directly to consumers. Around World War II, states began implementing these laws to protect independent car dealerships from large auto manufacturers. The thinking was that if automakers could open their own competing showrooms and service centers, they would wipe out local mom-and-pop dealers. The restrictions on car companies were aimed at preventing what economists call vertical integration. Now, the need for such prohibitions was dubious from the outset. Intended to promote competition, they quickly led to less of it. 
and the system became a lucrative racket for dealerships as they won franchises and kept rivals at bay. In a 2015 Mercatus Center report, auto franchise laws restrict consumer choice and increase prices. Jerry Ellig and Jesse Martinez highlighted the primary types of franchise mandates, dealership licensing requirements, onerous terms for terminating dealership affiliations, and the creation of exclusive territories for dealers. Each rule carries a potential cost for consumers, they noted. But over the past decades, over the past decade, rather, instead of dropping these auto franchising rules and direct sales restrictions, some states passed new bills to limit competition. This time, the laws targeted Tesla because its sales model was to sell straight to to the customers, bypassing local dealerships. And Elon Musk's philosophy not to make a profit on service, which is how auto dealers earn most of their money, created even more opposition for the company. More recently, in some states, Tesla has gotten an exemption from franchising restrictions just for itself. Now other electric vehicle makers have emerged like Rivian, Lucid, Canoe, and Lordstown Motors. But they must compete with Tesla on an uneven playing field or win their own exemptions. So the authors say pressure for reform could come from the legacy automakers as well. Ford and General Motors are increasingly frustrated with dealerships that are tacking on significant markups to the price of vehicles. Supply chain problems and a scarcity of the semiconductors used in cars have contributed to shortages of many new vehicles. Some price hikes were probably inevitable, but dealers charging a far greater sticker price than the manufacturer's suggested retail price can lead to blowback from customers, and it also makes it harder for automakers to advertise standard prices across the country when local dealerships charge different prices. Now, automakers could withhold certain makes and models from dealers that charge excessive prices, but what if Ford and GM could sell directly to consumers or at least threaten to sell some of their cars directly to bring dealerships into line? On the other hand, there may be good business reasons for automakers to avoid doing this, such as not wanting to alienate dealers or deal with shipping so many vehicles directly to customers. We can't know what the best business arrangement is so long as it's illegal for most automakers to even consider selling directly. No state has completely deregulated car sales by allowing all manufacturers to sell all vehicles directly to customers. Faced with any move to end these anti-consumer laws and allow the market to function freely, dealerships cannot continue to plead the mom-and-pop business defense. The top 10 dealership groups in America have an annual revenue of around $100 billion, more than any car company. That's according to University of Michigan law professor Daniel Crane. Last year, 75 economics and law professors signed an open letter urging states to legalize direct sales. Not only have the original justifications for prohibiting direct distribution evaporated, it noted, but the advent of EV technology has created an urgent need to permit direct distribution. Now, there are almost no other sectors where such naked protectionism is still tolerated. Liquor sales are one major exception, with some states still limiting home delivery. Those restrictions seem only to serve the interest of wholesalers who essentially have their middleman status protected by law. Opponents of direct-to-consumer liquor sales can at least argue that the laws are based on safety concerns. Nonetheless, wine and beer markets have been increasingly liberalized to allow direct sales and the sky hasn't fallen. So some states may hurt electric vehicle sales by protecting entrenched dealerships, but many of these same states simultaneously boost sales by handing out cash to to buyers. Many also hand out tax breaks and other perks to manufacturers to get them to open or expand operations in their state. 
Last year, all but three states provided incentives to encourage the purchase or development of electric vehicles. Now, from here, they go into talking about handing out goodies. They talk about green pork. But the point here is that uh, paying producers is pointless. In fact, cronyism is the only real winner. So which brand of cronyism is going to prevail? Well, sadly, you know, both kinds of cronyism could, could, uh, could, in a better world, no special favors would be granted to anybody. Legacy car dealerships lobbying to protect their turf, customers who want to buy a trendy car at a discount, or the innovative but rent-seeking electric vehicle makers deciding where to build their next factory. But politics has a way of ensuring the worst of all outcomes, with special interests preserving their gains through what Mankur Olson described as the logic of collective action. As he noted, when political benefits are concentrated but the costs are dispersed, special interests will move aggressively to take advantage and seize those benefits. Everyone else, the vast number of people who will bear the costs, will be unlikely to fight back effectively. The costs may be so diffused or hidden that people will have little incentive or ability to organize and push back against the privileged companies that collect these benefits. So this is the world of electric vehicle policy today. And even though it both hurts and helps manufacturers, political entrepreneurs will always seek out benefits for themselves, shape the political debate to portray their narrow self-interest as good for everyone. Remember, electric cars help the environment. And then lobby politicians to award this perfectly sensible special treatment. But as always, taxpayers and consumers are the ones left footing the bill. It's a lot of great information in this article. If you're thinking about getting an electric vehicle, you might want to click on the show notes and take a look at it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.